it's a big mystery actually. <laughs> uh, we don't know how, how this has happened because you would expect that there would be gene flow between these populations, but clearly there's not coming from Vancouver Island all the way to the island of Chiloé. Um, the answer is we don't know. Hello, my name is Katie Hind and I am a phycologist who studies coral and algae on the Pacific Northwest. Welcome back to episode 3 of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I am your host. Today I am sitting down with Dr. Katie Hind again and we are talking about all of her travel that she's done to collect coral and algae. As with all of my episodes, I recommend you follow my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast. On there, you'll find some resources for this episode, as well as it'll help you keep up to date with the upcoming episodes. So grab a coffee and enjoy. And so, as a coral and algae scientist, what does a day in your life look like? <laughs> Well, right now I'm actually an instructor at the University of Victoria, um, so I teach mostly right now. Um, I still do my research, but a lot of it happens on the weekends and evenings, unfortunately. Um, I can tell you a day in the life of what it was like when I was doing my postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before I became an instructor, uh, I would um, I do a lot of work with museum curation um, because a lot of what we um, are doing is collecting kind of data about the diversity of species that exist. And so we house a lot of the specimens that we collect in special museums that are called herbaria. Um, and these are like libraries of plants. Um, and the Beattie Biodiversity Museum at UBC has the, one of the largest collections of coral and algae uh, in the whole world. And so I work closely with the museum um, collections manager and we process all of the collections. I usually have a team of students that would help. Um, so some students would be extracting DNA from the specimens. Some students would be pressing the specimens, drying them, mounting them, and putting them, um, accessioning them into the museum and databasing them. Um, and some students would be um, taking photographs, and some students would be on the microscope looking at their anatomy, so measuring cell sizes and all sorts of different things. So it really is a whole team of people that all work together. And I mean, as, as a PhD student, I did that all by myself. Um, but as a researcher, you kind of have all of the, a whole team of people that help you with all these different aspects. Um, and so I still have a lot of that happening. Oh, and then of course there's people writing as well. So that's how we communicate what we find is by writing it down um, and creating uh, scientific publications. So the writing part of it is often what the, the lead researcher is working on is kind of analyzing all the data. So we have students and volunteers and work study students and directed study students that are gathering all the data. And then the lead scientist is really writing up all the results and communicating it. Um, so it was, a wonderful experience and I'm still doing that. I'm still writing papers on coral and algae. I'm still sorting algae. We are um, we are working on, so I teach out at the Banfield Marine Sciences Center and the students that um, collect algae there, 
we're depositing it in the UVic herbarium. And so it's great because the students gather the data, we get to still extract DNA and do all those things, and then also get to deposit them in the herbarium here. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't really talked about DNA Yeah, I was gonna ask, so what do you do with the DNA that you're extracting from algae? Right, so the thing about algae is that, and seaweeds, is that they're really hard to tell apart. So um, especially coral and crusts, so the ones that you know are on the bottom of the ocean and all over the rocks they kind of just like look like one big mass of pink crust uh, but what we found is that there's actually many different species there they're just really hard to tell apart and so that's called a cryptic species um, and so if we extract the dna then we can have um, what we call a dna barcode which is a little piece of dna that's like a species identifier a little code um, that goes along with that species. And so then we can differenti differentiate species using their DNA rather than looking at their morphology or anatomy, which is their kind of their external appearance because they look so similar. And sometimes, you know, if they're not reproductive or if they don't have the character that you need to differentiate them, then you won't be able to tell them apart at all. Um, and so having DNA is a little bit more objective actually because it's always going to be the same for the same species has the same DNA barcode or the same code so that is very very helpful the other thing we do with DNA is we can actually extract DNA from historical specimens um, and apply those species names to contemporary samples so say Darwin went out and collected and I actually just published a paper where Darwin was the collector of the seaweed Darwin went out and said, I'm going to name this species <laughs> Coralina, or Linnaeus names the species Coralina officinalis. So I want to know if what I have today is the same thing that Linnaeus was seeing 100 years ago. And so I can um, extract the DNA from that exact specimen from the 1800s and match it to the things that I have today. And yeah. so that is really powerful to be able to go back into these historical collections and be able to say what Darwin or Linnaeus saw a hundred years ago is the same thing that we have here on Vancouver Island. And so you can really bring in biogeography and that's what we, this, this most recent paper that I'm publishing is looking at um, species of corallines that live, that are in South America, in Chile, which is a temperate latitude very similar to Vancouver Island and we even have some species that are the same um, between Vancouver Island and the island of Chiloé in Chile <laughs> at the same latitude and so we're able to make those connections that we might not be able to make just by looking at the morphology but with the DNA we see oh wow these have the exact same DNA code and this DNA code is exactly the same as what they saw a hundred years ago from their trip on, from Darwin's trip on the Beagle. Right. Which is pretty amazing. Whoa. So in my mind, I would think that the water in Chile is warmer than here. At least I would hope so. Is it? Or no, how do you have the, these species kind of so similar, or the same species living so far from each other? The neat thing is, well, it's a big mystery actually. <laughs> uh, we don't know how, how this has happened because you would expect that there would be gene flow between these populations, but clearly there's not coming from Vancouver Island all the way to the island of Chiloé. Um, 
The answer is we don't know. Some people have discovered like underwater, deep water currents that do run along the whole of the Pacific coast. That's a potential hypothesis. Um, there's also the hypothesis that the world wasn't always, the continents weren't laid out the exact same way they are now. So Pangaea, they might have been closer together at one point in evolutionary time, and now they've been separated. Um, but honestly, the answer is we don't know. And it was, it, I expected to find that there would be a completely different set of coralline species that lived in the island of Chiloé. And there are some, but then we do find some that are the same. So this is the thing about seaweeds is they have, so some of them can be what we call cosmopolitan, so a species that is found throughout the world. So Coralina officinalis, for example, is a cosmopolitan coralline, and it's found in every ocean. Whereas others are endemic, so they're only found in one place in the world. Um, and we're not entirely sure why some are more cosmopolitan. Obviously, some can tolerate greater conditions, different depths, different light regimes, and others can't. And so that is what shapes kind of the distribution of seaweeds worldwide. Wow. Mm -hmm. And have you gone to this island in Chile to do the research? Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. So in uh, 2014, I went um, to Chile to try to find these Bossiella specimens <laughs> that um, match what we have here in Canada because it, it really is the same latitude in the temperate um, in the southern hemisphere. And so the ocean temperatures are very similar actually. Um, and there is a lot of similarities between um, the different hemispheres. And so my mission was to go and collect as many different corallines as we could. And like I said, we're just publishing this paper now. So yeah, we went to the island of Chiloé, which is t really very much like the Vancouver Island of Chile. Wow. <laughs> you take a ferry to get there. It's this little island community. It's about the same size. Um, and yeah, it was great. We, we got to travel around and go scuba diving. Scuba diving in Chile <laughs> was, uh, we brought all our gear. Um, with us, but finding places to get air was a little bit challenging. At one point, we met someone like in the back of a parking lot <laughs> who gave us tanks um, that like connected us through the B&B where we were staying. Like it, it was, and we don't, we didn't speak like very fluent uh, Spanish, so that was oh, tricky my as well. So, um, but yeah, it, it was, and I went with one of my best friends for my PhD. She came with me, so. Um, I had a great travel companion, and um, yeah, it was it was pretty spectacular. I would love to go back to Chile. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so I'm assuming that as a scientist, you get some sort of kind of right to collect species and bring them back yeah, to Canada? Yeah, that is challenging, so it depends where you go. Um, the nice thing about working on seaweeds is that they're not animals. <laughs> Um, and so people are generally okay with you collecting a little bit of things. So when we say we're collecting, we're not collecting like garbage bags full of these things. We are seriously, we're just, we are collecting um, individuals usually because we like to have, we often find differences in species side by side. So we need to collect one individual specimen and that individual gets barcoded and then gets deposited in the herbarium. So 
Generally, um, it depends where you are. In California, pretty much the entire coast of California are marine protected areas, and so you need a lot of permits. And mm -hmm. so a big part of doing international um, biology of anything of any kind is to make sure that you n know what the rules are for where you're going um, and make sure you have the appropriate permits and that you've talked to the government and everything. And a big part of that is being in connection with people that do similar work in your field in those places. So I would always reach out to seaweed scientists first wherever I'm going to make sure that I have the appropriate documentation. Often, you know, if I'm going to a place that has a lot of um, restrictions, especially like um, Point Lobos in Monterey Bay, California, is this beautiful, great spot, but it's a historic spot where people have collected seaweed for a long time. But you would have to bring along one of the local researchers that has all of the permits in order to go to that place to collect. So it really depends where you're going. Chiloé, Chile in general, and Chiloé was pretty relaxed. <laughs> um, and so you can collect a small amount of seaweed and bring it back. We always put on the packages of specimens, like for education, not for consumption or sale, or because you do definitely get lots of strange looks in the airports when you're like bringing <laughs> all these um, specimens back. But also, the DNA gets stored. The specimen, the sample that we collect for DNA, gets stored in a white powder <laughs> called silica that um, <laughs> get, uh, takes the water out of the specimen. And I'm assuming border control isn't a huge fan of. Yeah, so I have all of these vials of white powder <laughs> that you're trying to bring across the border. Um, and so often we'll just send things in the mail. Okay. Wherever we are, we'll just like send them in the mail. That way we don't have to deal with airport mm -hmm. <laughs> issues. And we try to put all of the like information, like we're at this university and this is what the white powder is and you can open it and sample it. And you know, so we do all of that. And it, it usually goes a little bit smoother going through the post than trying to bring samples on the airplane. Yeah. Have you ever had anything confiscated from you at the airport? <laughs> well, so my friend, I told you about my friend that I went to Chile with. Um, she is also a rock hound. <laughs> and so she had all these rocks in her pockets. <laughs> and they took her rocks. They wouldn't let her take her rocks back to Canada. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, but they let us take the seaweeds with us. We often, again, if, we're, if we are taking them on the airplane, we'll put them in our luggage. And often if it's like behind the scenes, like the people that will inspect your luggage, they'll let it go through as long as it has all the documentation with it. But my friend was literally had her pockets full of rocks and uh, <laughs> she couldn't take the rocks. Yeah, back. they were like, you gotta leave these here. <laughs> so you can take our seaweed. It's not even a live specimen. Yeah, but they still didn't want her to take the rocks. Oh my goodness, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, but no, I haven't had too many problems. Like we're pretty, diligent with how we package everything and mm -hmm. um, but it does look pretty sketchy when we do but it, it does cost a lot to mail everything uh, from around the world oh yeah I can imagine yeah where yeah. where's like the furthest that you've gone to collect seaweed um well so I so I was lucky enough to go to Chile um, I've been to Japan um, Japan is another part of the Pacific Rim right mm -hmm. so if you think about our um, seaweeds and our marine diversity that we have here it extends up into Alaska and then goes across the Aleutian Islands at the top and then into Kamchatka and down into Russia and then all the way down into 
Asia and into Japan. And so, and so I went to, the, again, the same like latitude in Japan has an incredible diversity of seaweeds as well. They have beautiful kelps and corallins. And um, so, yeah, going to Japan was really amazing. And I went snorkeling there. The cool thing was I was a little bit further south than um, like our similar latitude. And the neat thing there was that when you dive in the water, it's like you're swimming in a kelp forest like here, but there's also these like tropical fish. So there would be like neon blue fish swimming by and like all these different wow. <laughs> colors that you wouldn't see in a kelp forest here. So it was kind of interesting to see that difference. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and again, we wanna see like how, what the distribution is of these corallins or, or any seaweeds, how far they go around the Pacific Rim and if they're, um, if they're the same or different. And again, we have some that are the same and some that are different and it depends on if they're endemics or, or if they can move if they have gene flow between the populations. So, right. Yeah, so going to Japan was amazing. I went camping there um, because camping is free in Japan. Oh. And so as a grad student, you don't have a lot of funds to like, stay in fancy hotels or anything. So I just brought my tent and it was hot. It was August, it was so hot, which was actually kind of nice for snorkeling and stuff because I didn't need a lot of gear. Um, but I went to the Izu Shoto Islands, they're off of Tokyo, so it's like a three-hour ferry ride out to this little archipelago of islands, um, and so I just island hopped around to all these, it's kind of like, I was imagine, it's kind of like the Gulf Islands of here, mm -hmm. like just little islands that you can go around between ferries and camp for free, and the campgrounds there were like so clean and so nice and everyone was so friendly and most people what they're doing when they go camping in Japan is um, fishing for sushi oh so people will bring spears and harpoon and and they'll spear fish and then they'll just bring them up and eat them raw and <gasps> they, they're like it's the best because it's the most fresh sashimi mm -hmm. that they could ever find right because they're literally just like fishing it and bringing it up and eating it right and and using their knife skills and so it was really um, eye-opening as a Canadian to go to Japan and see what people do camping in Japan and the big thing is eating they're like harvesting um, black turban snails and eating them off the rocks <laughs> raw <laughs> and they were harvesting fish like I said like spear fishing and then the crazy, and so actually a few of them invited me over to their campsite to eat with them and to like try all these different things from the intertidal zone. And then the thing that surprised me is in the middle of the night, I saw all these lights, it's like midnight, and there were all these lights and people were moving around. I, was, I didn't really know what was happening. And then I learned, I went out to kind of see what was going on and they were going down to hunt um, jellyfish. So they would bring their lights down at night and harvest jellyfish and then eat jellyfish. <laughs> As, <laughs> like and, and, and squid. And squid. They were doing jellyfish and squid. And so they would, the squid would come up to the light and then they would, they would spear them and then they would eat squid. <laughs> so it was like literally like an all-day buffet. <gasps> they were just eating <laughs> sushi the whole day. Wow. And yeah. you're just there to kind of find some algae. Yeah, I was, I was really 
surprised and and I just you just don't see people doing that here that's right just, you know if someone grabbed a snail off the <laughs> rock and ate it in Tofino I don't I think people would be like what are you doing <laughs> um, but there it just kind of seemed like what you do and they even had like whole kitchens set up like really nice facilities for cooking and everything it was really amazing I highly recommend camping in Japan wow I'll <laughs> add that to my bucket list yeah <laughs> that was really phenomenal whoa yeah Wow. Okay, so Japan. Um, oh yeah. So okay, so Chile, Japan, um, Hawaii. Oh, was fun. Really nice. Um, again, the diving there is spectacular. Um, total different flora than we have here. Um, but often I'll try to partner a collection trip if there's like a conference or something. So I went. There was a Phycological Society of America conference in Hawaii, mm -hmm. and then we also did a collecting trip too. Um, California, so I've done a lot in California because um, a lot of the original collections of Coralins were made in California. And so we all, again, we want to check that what they were calling Bacilla frondifera in 1950 is the same as what we're calling Bacilla frondifera here in Alaska, for example. So, right. So a lot in California. Um, and then I also go this isn't international, but um, like I was saying during my postdoc, my, I was what's called a Hakai scholar, and I worked with the um, Hakai Institute, which is on the central coast of British Columbia near Bella Bella. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to spend lots of time up there scuba diving, and they do have an air compressor there, so you can go on many day dives, which is awesome. And it's a it's a uh, not-for-profit private um, science foundation mm -hmm. that operates up there in all sorts of different um, aspects of science. Oh, cool. Thanks for stopping by and listening to episode three of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I'm really happy that you joined me today. Today was the last segment of my interview with Dr. Katie Hind. So next week we'll be featuring a new marine scientist. So you can follow my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast to see the updates for that episode and to see when it gets uploaded. I really hope you enjoyed and have a great rest of your day.